hello, welcome, and uh, thank you all for coming uh, to this afternoon's Times Literary Supplement sponsored event, uh, which forms part of LSE's ninth Space for Thought Literary Festival, which is taking place uh, all week with the theme of revolutions. My, my name's Toby Lustig, I'm the uh, fiction editor of the TLS, and I'm delighted and honoured to be joined by uh, the award-winning author and literary insurgent, Eamon McBride, um, to discuss revolutionary literature, past and present. Um, unfortunately, as you may have gathered, there is uh, a missing third seat, uh, which was to be occupied by Ali Smith, who has um, unfortunately been detained by Storm Doris. Um, irrepressible in her prose, she has um, unfortunately been painted by the elements. But anyway, um, I think we will be able to have a fruitful discussion nonetheless, um, and there will be plenty to say. And we'll also try and um, talk a little bit about, um, about Ali as well. Um, so for introductions, um, I'm sure Ema doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Um, Ema McBride's debut novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, uh, took nine years to publish and subsequently received the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year, the Goldsmiths Prize, the Desmond Elliott Prize, and the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize. Um, so some might say it was worth waiting all that time for, or I suspect you, you probably don't. Um, and her latest equally brilliant and linguistically dazzling novel, The Lesser Bohemians, a uh, tale of uh, young love, older love, tainted love, romantic love, and sexual survival, among other things, uh, came out late last year. Um, we have to do a bit of housekeeping first. Um, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE LitFest. Uh, and I'd like to ask you to please put your phones on silent uh, so as not to disrupt things. Uh, the event is being recorded and will hopefully uh, be made available as a podcast. I was told to say hopefully because apparently these things are always subject to technical difficulties, but I'm sure they won't happen. Um, and so, yes, so we're going to start off by having uh, a chat, uh, possibly slightly, slightly shorter than build because of the, the lack of alley, um, uh, after which there'll be plenty of time uh, for audience questions. And I do, of course, encourage you all to take part and to grill uh, Ema uh, <laughs> about whatever you wish to grill her about. Um, and I should also say there's going to be a book signing after the event um, with copies of Ema's book available which you'll sign and there will also be copies of Ali's book too which I don't think Ema will sign but we can see about that. Um, so let me set out the parameters of the debate for those who, who haven't seen the flyers. Um, the turn of the 20th century saw a move away from the traditional towards the experimental and radical in the arts with modernist writers breaking with established forms and subjects. Uh, in this talk we'll consider modernism, its legacy and Ema and Ali's as well um, own revolutionary approaches to fiction. Um, and so I thought I'd start off by asking you first, uh, Ema, what you understand by the term modernism. And then I was going to ask you to read out uh, a partic particularly favourite passage or two of modernist literature. And perhaps we can have a little talk about what it was about, about that passage or what it is about that passage that um, is so revolutionary and was at the time. So to start with modernism, what, what is modernism? Uh, well, I was really hoping Ali was going to be here to answer that question because <laughs> I knew that was coming. Um, I suppose it's, I mean, it, it, it can be viewed in lots of different ways. It um, was a reaction against the Enlightenment, against 
um, rationalism. Um, it was maybe um, picking up the torch of romanticism in some ways about concern that the experience of life and of the world cannot be explained solely in empirical terms. Um, and, and also, you know, a reaction against the brutality of, of life post the Industrial Revolution, um, and then later the First World War. Um, but I suppose, for me, I see it as a form of resistance, um, it is a way of bringing, for me, the reader in much closer to the experience of the novel than is n- possible in a, with a straighter way of writing, I think. Um, and it's about the, the how being as important as the what when it comes to the creation of a work. And does that, do you think that pertains to other forms as well, so kind of modernist poetry as well? And, and yeah, I think, it, I think it does. I mean, I wouldn't want to speak too much about things like painting and um, music, but I, I think in, in principle, certainly in terms of literature, it, it, it does. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm interested in that idea of it being a reaction. This, the, I mean, you know, revolutions are often bloody, aren't they? Mm. And so... I think in a way it can be easier to say about what, what something is not than rather, rather than what it is. But I think what it was tearing down and what it was rebelling against was so important to the whole movement. And, and I, guess, I guess one of the things we, I want to talk a bit about is how modernism has evolved over the years and whether you... I mean, you know, the, there are various different ways of looking at modernism depending on whether we're talking about British modernism or continental or whatever. But, you know, one, one thing that people often say is that modernism ended the modernist period ends sort of with the start of the Second World War. But then does it, is there a kind of modernist progression? Is there, does the kicking against that still happens in art and will always happen in art, does that take different forms or is there something intrinsically modernist to, to that kind of rebellion? Yeah, I don't think that it does really end at that point. I think there are a lot of reasons why it's seen and I think I'm going to read a bit uh, from Finnegan's Wake in a while and I think Finnegan's Wake is maybe one of the reasons why people said that's it we're done with modernism now um, <laughs> we're tired <laughs> yeah we really just can't be doing with this anymore but um, but I I, I, mean, I think there, there might be an argument for saying that everything that has come since has been m- modernism still a splintering of and a, and a changing of and reaction to different things but the um, the sort of the demand of language for language to 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 go against the bourgeoisie continues, whatever form that is, and and you know, and I think things like pop art probably work in the same on the same principle. It just sounds different and looks different so we, from sort of high modernism. So we call it postmodernism or whatever you want to call it, but yeah. it's still part of the same. I think it is. Reaction. I think it is. Um, okay, well, as you've mentioned, um, Finnegan's Wake, Wake. Should, we, should we examine a little passage? And yes, only a very little passage. <laughs> <laughs> a book I must confess I have never read and may <laughs> never read, I don't know. <laughs> Page turner, this one. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that I chose this passage particularly because it had any resonance. I mostly chose it because about two years ago I was asked to read a bit of it for a 
uh, a UNESCO sort of film about Joyce and Finnegan's Wake. So I had already practiced reading it, so that's why I chose <laughs> to read it again. <laughs> good a reason as any. But it's, uh, I like it. It's a good piece. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's about... I think it's about sort of the building of Dublin and also an erection. So, here we go, and good luck to us all. Big Master Finnegan of the stuttering hand, Freeman's marrower, lived in the broadest way imaginable, in his rush lit too far back for messages before Joshuan judges had given us numbers or Helveticus committed Deuteronomy. One yeasty day he sternly struck his tet in a tub for to watch the future of his fates, but ere he swiftly stuck it out again, by the might of Moses, the very water was evaporated, and all the Guinnesses had met their exodus. So that ought to show you what a pension juicy chap he was. And during mighty odd years this man of hod, cement and edifices, in Toper's Thorpe piled, bildung, supra bildung, upon the banks for the livers by the soang so. He had a little fifty annie ugg the little crater, with her hair in hands, tuck up your part in her. Oft while Balbulus mither ahead, with goodly trowel in grasp and ivor oiled overalls, which he habitacularly fancied like Harun Childeric Egberth, he would caligulate by multiplicables the altitude and multitude, until he see saw by neat light of the liquor where Twind was born, his round head staple of other days, to rise in undress masonry, upstanded joy granted, a wallworth of a sky and of most Eiffel hoith entirely, originating from next to nothing and celescalating to the himmels and all. Higher architect tipped atop loftical with the burning bush abob off its bauble top with larens of tulers clittering up and tumbles of buckets clottering down. Of the first was he to bear arms and a name, Vassily Buzala of Riesengeborg, his crest of heraldry invert with ancillars, troublant, argent, a hedgehog, persuivant, horrid, horned. His scutchcum fest with archer strung, helio of the second. Hooch is for husbandman handling his ho, 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 Mr. Finn. You're going to be Mr. Finn again. Come day Mormon, oh, your vine. Sunday's Eve and ah, your vinegar. Ha, ha, Mr. Fun. You're going to be fined again. There you go. <laughs> that was wonderful. Um, actually, that before, was something. It was, it was definitely <laughs> something. Actually, out of interest, I'd be, I'd be intrigued to see how many people have hands up, how many people have read Finnegan's Wake in this room? So we've got three or four. And... <laughs> um, and how many, people, that, how many people have read, let's say, Ulysses? Yeah, so that's very... So, okay, so this was not a question I was particularly going to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What, what do you think it is about Finnegan's weight that people clearly find rebarbative or struggle with or don't get to, whereas Ulysses is, is something that, you know, we all, or so many of us, come to at some stages in our lives? And, and how, how, as someone who's read both and knows both quite well, how different are they, actually? Well, very different, and I would definitely not say I know Finnegan's way very well. I mean, in some ways, it doesn't really matter that I've read it, because, uh, you know, I can't really say any more than anyone who hasn't read it about it. But um, I think the, the thing about Ulysses is there's space in it. There's room in it for the reader. 
And Joyce is, you know, he's, he's, he's facing the audience still at that point. When it comes to Finnegan's Wake, he's turned his back. So he's doing the thing in Ulysses that you were saying about getting close getting close to the reader, kind of removing that yeah, level of mediation. Yeah, I think mediation. so. Despite the sort of the, the linguistic difficulty, there is, once you're in, you're much closer to the, to the creation of the work and, and to kind of like rubbing the fabric between your hands as you go along. Finnegan's Wake, though, is a different... I mean, its purpose is different, you know, because I used to think, Jesus, I think writing Ulysses just broke him. That was it. And then he wrote Finnegan's Wake. But actually... That was quite a stupid thing to think. <laughs> um, because, you know, it is this idea of the book of, of the night, of, of trying to capture dream um, and language having to work in a different way in order to connect with the brain that dreams. Um, and, and so, I mean, for a long time I just thought, Finnegan's Wake, what was the point of that? That was, you know, kind of ruined modernism for everyone. But... But I think just in the last few years, reading parts of it again, definitely not all of it again, I think that it, there is something there that is very primal, despite the kind of, the, the kind of double layer of pun that's running over absolutely every single word and sentence, I mean, which is sort of incredible and infuriating mm. and the thing that really puts people off. Um, is that he is asking you to read with a completely different part of yourself, a part of yourself that is not in control of itself or in control of the material in any way, that is not able to bring anything of its previous experience really to it in order to help you through it. You just have to allow the book to be what it is inside you. And, that's and is that asking too much of its reader? Or? Well, I would say a lot of readers would consider so. Um, I think it is, it is, I mean, it's a pretty specialist thing, and I don't, you know, the, what it requires of the reader is a lot. It's a big, big ask, and a lot of people just don't have the time or the inclination for it, but I think that doesn't mean there isn't something important and interesting there, and that, you know, because I once said that it was like a, a door slamming, and, and that was really wrong, actually, there is room to go on from Finnegan's Wake. It's just, it's just a bit off-putting when you get there first, and it's hard to realise that you can use this, these techniques to to go somewhere else, somewhere that's maybe not quite so complex. And I mean, for me, in a way, with a girl as a half-room thing was about taking not sort of Ulysses, but. Also, the idea may be more of Finnegan's Wake, although I read Finnegan's Wake just before I started writing Girl is Half. But you already had the idea, presumably, having read Ulysses. Well, Ulysses yeah. kind of gave me the idea that I, you could just do whatever you wanted if you were able to pull it off. And, um, but Finnegan's Wake, you know, I just read it, like, you know, two, two months maybe before I started Girl, and... And I thought, yeah, there is there's something like just stepping back, taking what there is in this book and going in a slightly different direction with it because it is useful, it is possible. Is it unique or are there other, other works that you, you think are in any way comparable? I mean, you know, setting it in its modernist context or whatever. Yeah. Was he doing something with that that was, was just a revolution away from everyone, everyone else's revolutions? Or I think 
he was. I mean, I think he was way beyond everyone else, and I think he's still way beyond everyone else, um, which, you know, makes Finnegan's Wake such a, a sort of a lonely book in the canon. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, Beckett, sort of, in some ways, but not really. Not really. No one else is doing this. I mean, you know, I think... The Making of Americans, Gertrude Stein's The Making of Americans, has a similar sort of foreboding reputation, but actually I, I think that book is what people say Finnegan's Wake is, mm. which is this kind of very solipsistic, navel-gazing kind of work. Um, and I think Making of Americans is like that. It's too personal. And of course, Joyce, there are lots of personal sort of jokes and games throughout, but at the same time, it is there is a possibility for something much more universal whereas really making of americans is kind of private jokes about the word cow meaning orgasm between her and alice you know and it you shouldn't have to study the biography of a of the writer to be able to understand the book i mean what about it what about its effect at the time was it the bombshell um that perhaps joyce intended or i think it probably wasn't what he intended, I think it probably wasn't what he wanted, was this, you know, kind of closing down, really, um, of of sort of critical attitudes towards him in a way that it just became such a specialist thing and I think he had hoped for better. Um, and that was probably the thing that broke him in the end. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your own relationship with modernism more generally, um, both mm. as a reader and as an author. And you've already said that, um, obviously, Joyce has inspired you to a certain extent. Are there any other authors from the period who have had a, a big impact on you? No, not, I mean, not really at that time. Uh, not who are sort of traditional... Well, traditional, but, you know, what I mean, modernist writers. I mean, I think Dostoevsky is a big influence on me, and he's a sort of prototype for modernism in a way. In what sense? Well, it's the, it's the kind of the beginning of that sinking in, I think, of understanding the layer of life beneath the surface of general physical activity in a very, in a much richer, much more complex way, and the understanding of psychology um, and allowing that to influence action rather than it solely being about the author's sort of political intent or social intent or comedic intent or um, so it's yeah I suppose it's something like that for me about Dostoevsky and do you find you have to kind of shuck off your influences before you start writing then or, or you know do you have Theodore and James sort of sitting on your <laughs> shoulders as you... No, because luckily my memory is a bit like a sieve. <laughs> you know, I generally when I read things, I just remember whether I like them or not. <laughs> and I can't really remember anything else about them after that. So I can't say anything specific about almost anything that I've read. And after a time, even the books that I've written myself, I can hardly remember. <laughs> as long as they're all burned on your brains, that's okay. <laughs> um, okay, and so we have, you know, we've had the... The modernist explosion, sort of partly after the First World War in the 20s and the 30s, and Joyce and the new, you touched on Beckett. What other revolutions or, or part of the modernist revolution after that period do you think has most endured? You know, who, 
what were the other who were the other authors perhaps since the since the Second World War you feel have really had that kind of revolutionary um, effect on writing and and on the way we read books? Is there anyone that particularly sticks out for you? I mean, for me, it's not 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 for the same reasons. I think in some ways it becomes much more about very people writing for specific reasons about specific things. So, you know, I've often spoken about how, you know, my sort of love of Edna O'Brien. And, of course, she was very influenced by Joyce herself. Um, but, the, you know, in a way, she, she created her own revolution in Ireland by writing this book that spoke about a part of life that nobody wanted to admit existed so it's not just a question of form, it's... it's yeah, it becomes it's much more about, about subject and using sort of those tools in that way. I think formally it didn't get... It never really got as exciting again. And, you know, maybe more in the theatre, perhaps. Um, people like Pinter sort of picking up from Beckett and then people like Sarah Kane picking up from Pinter. You can see that much more clearly, I think, than in, in literature, but... Is purely subjective opinion, maybe about books that I have completely forgotten. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned Sarah Kane to me just before, and I, I know you were kind of potentially keen to read out a little bit yeah. of her work. Um, what, what is it about Sarah Kane that? Well, yeah, because when we had been emailing about the sort of this um, event, and you'd said, you know, maybe reading something. Something old and something new. <laughs> Are people um, here familiar <laughs> with the work of Sarah Kane, by the way? I don't know. They're mostly nods in the audience. So, yes, some nods. Um, getting a couple of queries. So, I mean, do you want to give a little brief well, description um, of her as a playwright? She, yeah, she was um, a, a playwright who really came to prominence in the 90s uh, here in the UK. Um, I think there are five, only five plays. They were cause of huge controversy and outrage um, at the time they were performed. Um, because of the content, which was very brutal, very sexually graphic. Um, and, you know, some of the press decided it was filth and other people felt that it was breaking new ground. And for me, um, she was a kind of tremendously important influence because she was the first woman that I had seen right in that way, in that very uncoy way about sex and also about um, rape and violence. Um, and it was tremendously exciting for me to realise that women could write in that way and not have to make nice um, about it, to kind of stick a big knife through the angel on the shoulder. And that, is that something you hadn't come across in, you know, obviously she's a playwright, um, yeah. something you hadn't come across in novels at that stage, or perhaps... Yeah, I don't think I had. I certainly it. hadn't come across it um, really in any uh, female writers. Um, and certainly a lot of that kind of writing, when it's done by men, has a very different effect. And certainly, I think for a woman reading it, you can often see where the gaps are in understanding. And so for me, it was just tremendously interesting, exciting, and revolutionary, really, to see a woman write in that completely unapologetic way. Um, so, uh, yeah, so 
I mean, she was very, very extraordinary. She unfortunately took her own life um, in 1999, I think. So all we have is this very small uh, body of mm. very, very um, wonderful plays. And was there a, was there a monologue? I think you said. That you well, there was. I was going to read. I don't know. I just kind of grabbed it on the way out of the house. Um, I thought I might read a little bit from 448 Psychosis, which was her last play, which was um, only performed after her death. And it doesn't really have any form. You don't know who it's about, who's speaking, how many people are speaking. could be a lot of people speaking. Um, And, yeah, I just thought I would read maybe just a few unconnected sections. It's really... It's kind of the... Reflection of a um, psychotic mind um, or of someone in a very, very deep depression. And 448 refers to the time that she would wake up in the morning when she would feel that she had some clarity. Um, so, yeah, I'll just read a few bits from it. I dread the loss of her I've never touched. Love keeps me a slave in a cage of tears. I know my tongue with which to her I can never speak. I miss a woman who was never born. I kiss a woman across the years that say we shall never meet. Everything passes, everything perishes, everything pulls. My thought walks away with a killing smile, leaving discordant anxiety which roars in my soul. No hope, no hope, no hope, no hope, no hope, no hope, no hope. A song for my loved one, touching her absence. The flux of her heart, the splash of her smile. In ten years' time, she'll still be dead. When I'm living with it, dealing with it, when a few days pass, when I don't even think of it, she'll still be dead. When I'm an old lady living on the street, forgetting my name, she'll still be dead. She'll still be dead. It's just fucking over, and I must stand alone. My love, my love, why have you forsaken me? She is the couching place where I shall never lie. And there's no meaning to life in the light of my loss. Built to be lonely, to love the absent, find me, free me from this corrosive doubt, futile despair, horror in repose. I can fill my space, fill my time, but nothing can fill this void in my heart, the vital need for which I would die. Breakdown. I gassed the Jews, I killed the Kurds, I bombed the Arabs, I fucked small children while they begged for mercy. The killing fields are mine. Everyone left the party because of me. I'll suck your fucking eyes out, send them to your mother in a box, and when I die I'm going to be reincarnated as your child, only 50 times worse and as mad as all fuck. I'm going to make your life a living fucking hell. I refuse, I refuse, I refuse. Look away from me. It's all right. Look away from me. It's all right, I'm here. Look away from me. Sanity is found in the centre of convulsion, where madness is scorched from the bisected soul. I know myself, I see myself. My life is caught in a web of reason, spun by a doctor to augment the sane. At 4.48, I shall sleep. I came to you hoping to be healed. You are my doctor, my saviour, my omnipotent judge, my priest, my god, the surgeon of my soul. I am your proselyte to sanity. 
to achieve goals and ambitions, to overcome obstacles and attain a high standard, to increase self-regard by the successful exercise of talent, to overcome opposition, to have control and influence over others, to defend myself, to defend my psychological space, to vindicate the ego, to receive attention, to be seen and heard, to excite, amaze, fascinate, shock, intrigue, amuse, entertain or entice others, to be free from social restrictions, to resist coercion and constriction, to be independent and act according to desire, to defy convention, to avoid pain, to avoid shame, to obliterate past humiliation by resumed action, to maintain self-respect, to repress fear, to overcome weakness, to belong, to be accepted, to draw close and enjoyably reciprocate with another, to converse in a friendly manner, to tell stories, exchange sentiments, ideas, secrets, to communicate, to converse, to laugh and make jokes, to win affection of desired other, to adhere and remain loyal to other, to enjoy sensuous experiences with cathected other, to feed, help, protect, comfort, console, support, nurse or heal, to be fed, helped, protected, comforted, consoled, supported, nursed or healed, to form mutually enjoyable, enduring, cooperating and reciprocating relationship with other, with an equal to be forgiven, to be loved, to be free. That seems to fit entirely um, with your sort of part definition of modernism as being about resistance and resistance to bourgeois values, um, as well as what you were saying about the refusal to make nice so yes I completely mm. see why you, why you chose that and I think actually that, that takes us nicely into your own work, your own two novels in which mm-hmm. I would um, also hazard to say that you refuse to make nice in, in various ways um, so I wonder if we could start off talking a little bit about your first novel, um, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing um, and, and I guess maybe if you could tell us a little bit about what it was you had in mind when you started writing it, what it was you wanted to do different, uh, differently, and, and you know whether that was a question of form or style or language or theme or the whole lot, and how that process was for you? Yeah, I think it was sort of a bit of it all. I, um, I wanted the reader to have a different kind of experience. I had never read a book that I had felt to be a physical experience, and I wondered if it was possible to write that. Coming from a sort of theatrical background as well. Well, yeah, of course, that sort of fed, you know, right into into everything for me, with that sort of immediacy that when you, you, you know, because I trained as an actor, that sort of immediacy that is absolutely imperative in theatre, you know, and, you know, Sarah Kane said that theatre has no memory, so everything is right there and present and I wanted my writing to work in that way as well but I wasn't having, interested having in having a mind a, like a sieve as well and not, not yeah, remembering the it was also readings. very helpful it works on so many levels for me um, but um, but yes and I so I think it, and it was then reading reading sort of Joyce's letters to his his um, his sponsor sort of talking about Finnegan's Wake and saying that there was this whole other part of life that, that couldn't be written about in a straightforward way with this, you know, kind of plain, linear, grammatical 
language that really I felt as though I was kind of being pointed in the direction of here's a big gap in everything. Nothing is happening in this place. Go and have a look and see if you can do something there. Um, and so that was really what I sat down with. That was all I sat down with when I began to write the book. And and it was then, you know, just a matter of... of I mean, at first I was just writing and writing and writing and it was all just rubbish. And and it was this, you know, I'd sat down with this idea of a girl walking down the street over a course of a day, which was, you know, obviously essentially a massive... Ulysses riff in off in Dublin and, or some, <laughs> somewhere, yeah. but it was all in it was all in London, so it was really different. <laughs> and um, so, of course, because it was like a grand act of plagiarism, nothing good came of it, um, quite rightly. And um, but one day, amidst all the kind of endless writing, because I decided I would write a thousand words a day, the image of this child in the womb arrived. And as soon as I wrote it down, I thought okay, this is the start, this is the beginning. And so, so really it was, it was then just following on from that. And so the whole time it wasn't, you know, because people often ask which came first, that you wanted to write this kind of story about this girl's life or you wanted to write in this form. And, and the two are completely inextricable. Mm-hmm. When it comes to a girl's half form thing, it was absolutely one following the other the whole way through the book. And I know, I know you said before that something can sometimes frustrate you, the emphasis um, by reviewers and critics and, and readers as well on what you're doing with language, which is, of course, tremendously exciting um, and different. And certainly when I, when I read it for the first time and when I reread it, it's different from anything else I've ever read. Um, yes, there are Joycean affinities or whatever, but I know you, you feel that there's sometimes a bit too much emphasis on the language at the expense of what the book is actually about. And Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, because yeah, I, I, you know, I suppose it, it falls into the, the A-B writer thing, which is that the A writer is about plot and the B writer is about language and I really wanted to see if it was possible to combine those two things and there are other writers that do it of course Um, but it was very important to me that that what the book was about was, 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 was of equal weight to how the book was written. Absolutely. And how did that approach feed into your follow-up novel, The Letter Bohemians? Well, it was... Um, it, in a way, it didn't, until the end, until the very end, because it, uh, it just took me a very, very long time. It took me nine years to write The Letter Bohemians. Uh, because... And how, how long did it take you to write, to write Girl? I mean, I know there's a kind of tortuous history, but... Yeah, six months. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a slightly different experience. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, so it was a very sort of torturous writing experience, Letter Bohemians, as opposed to Girl, which was a torturous publishing experience. Um, but I, it was really, that was the book that I, I felt much more, that it took me a long time to understand what I was writing about. And it was, and I wrote it, you know, over many years into kind of 800 pages of incredibly plain, dull text in which, you know, someone would say, and I went out the door, and then he said, wait for me. And then I said, okay, <laughs> look at that bit of rubbish on the street. Don't stand on it. Sounds like Canal Scored. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was <laughs> like that, but probably less self-effacing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, it was very much like that. It was because I felt I, took, I had to understand every single thing about the characters, what they were doing at every moment. And it was a very much a sort of 
that came from that background, that theatre background. It was really the kind of method writing novel in a way that Girl sort of was, but this was much more about creating those characters and that whole world around them from the, you know... And was that always with a view to then stripping it back? Or did you think you might No, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, But I did, once I kind of got to the end of the big 800-page draft in which I knew, like, how many hairs were on the back of each of his fingers, you know, that I now knew everything about them and the reader would be killed if they had to find out all of these things about these two people. And that actually, as the writer, I just had to trust that now that I knew that, uh, that would just that knowledge would just kind of feed into the stories, so just go back and write it again. And at that point, the language came into play because there was space for it. Then there was it wasn't having to carry all of this information. Mm-hmm. Oh, I knew all the information, and it was just making sure that I passed on only the tiny bit that was needed. I think that's probably a very good time for you to um, give everyone a little bit. taste of, of that language. A little spot of the Lesser Bohemians. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll read a little bit from... Just a little bit. From later on in the book, after he's spent the night telling her his, kind of his life story. And, um, Do you want to give a little bit about the setup? So it's, yes, uh, so it's... Yeah, it's, she's gone to London to go to drama school in 1994... And uh, she's Irish, mad keen to lose her virginity. Bumps into this big tall fella in a pub. He's willing to perform the task, although he doesn't realise that's going to be the task that night. And they have a bit of an odd experience, but the job gets done. And they don't expect really to see each other again. And a couple of weeks later, they bump into each other. And then it all goes from there. Um, and so this is much later on in the book when he's, he's kind of told her uh, a lot more about himself. Um, and for nerds, there's a bit of playing with Yeats's to a child dancing in the wind at the end of this section. Could I grow up in a night, grow up in this day, curled here with him on his small bed, in the cradle of our arms and wrap of our legs, watching him deep in his deep dream, Far the threat of what he's been while I lie here, in love. So much, and sooner than I thought I'd be. Years off I'd thought, and not like this. But I have come into my kingdom, where only pens and pencils were. Abrupt and all abrupt. No longer minnow in the darkness and the deep. Through the portals and currents I've been, going to the surface, up into the sun. Touch my own throat, his long arm. Shining like a body come fresh into the light. And she is in the centre of life. I am. I am her. Not unspun either. For what can it mean more than how a life was lived? His breath gone peaceful in the tight and warm. Twin mind to his. In different dreams, I hope. And list in their pooling through the dark. Across books and wine glasses. Over my bags. Contenting us. Well, across the world she lies, his girl, who is not me. Does she love him like I would if he were mine, that way? That other way I do not want. Tie up your long hair that the salt drops have wet. Being young you have not known the fool's triumph, nor yet, nor yet love lost as soon as won. No, that's wrong. Only one here, not lost at all. And dread? 
won't any more. For bound to him is what's to bind. And as for crying, for the wind. That's great. Um, I think we should probably have a little quick talk about Ali, um, because although she's not here... Behind her back. <laughs> behind her back. <laughs> um, it strikes me, I mean, yes, we don't want to talk too much about um, just the language in that book, and actually one of, the, one of the things I love about The Less Bohemians is the way it's structured, and I think it's, it's very, very cleverly done. Um, and that's something that Ali Smith, I think, does very well, and I think a lot of her books and her revolutionary approach to writing is about, a lot of it's about structure and how she deals with time and, I mean, even in terms of structure, the um, uh, um, how to be both. Um, as I'm sure lots of people here know you, there are two different ways of reading it. Um, yeah. There are two sections and depending on which copy you buy, uh, you either read the first section first and the second section second or vice versa. In fact, both sections are uh, labelled one. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your own feelings about the way Ali writes and how she has reinvigorated fiction by, by doing things like that. Well, you know, I mean, I find her <laughs> infuriatingly brilliant and uh, <laughs> kind of the great shadow that we all kind of hang around underneath. I think um, she has such a, a sort of a crisp intelligence and a clarity that I really admire that she writes from this very I know with very sort of deep ideas and but a kind of a generosity towards the humanity of her characters while at the same time she's she's drawing in all of these different influences literary influences and artistic influences and and yet it never feels mannered it's very playful it's very playful and there's a lot of just a humanity in it, I think. You never feel as though you are being educated while you are, in fact, being educated, um, which is the best kind mm. of literature, I think. Um, and yes, I we mean, sort of, you know, we learn about Renaissance art um, yeah. in House of Both, yeah. and we learn about the Perfumer Affair yeah, in and, her yeah. recent novel, Autumn. Yeah, um, pop art. And, and pop art and Pauline yeah. Boaty and... Yes, and it's extremely... It doesn't feel like you're being... Anything's being rammed down your throat. Yeah, and, um, and as I was saying to you before, she and I had done an event um, in Cambridge a little bit like this <clears throat> a couple of years ago, and um, she had read from uh, Gertrude Stein, and she spoke a bit about the rose is a rose is a rose and what that meant to her. And, and you know, at the end of autumn, that image of the rose comes back in, and you just... I, I don't know, I was, as I read it, I was so aware of the richness mm. of what she draws on, of what she brings, and, but the lightness with which she delivers it. I, I'm, I'm very interested in the new project, which, um, for those of you who don't know, so her most recent novel, Autumn, which came out in the autumn, is part of um, a four-part series, um, each dedicated to a different season, which I think it's Ali's intention to write over the course of a year. So she was writing Autumn pretty much up until its publication date, which must have required some heroic efforts on the part of the publishers <laughs> as well. So. Um, and so it's, you know, it's often called the first Brexit novel because she was writing it as Brexit was happening. And there are, although it's not specifically about Brexit, there are lots of references to it. And actually it fits in with various themes about borders and closure and mm. diminishment, um, uh, in my opinion anyway. We might have some Brexiteers here who 
<laughs> beg to differ, but that's also fine. Um, uh, and so, <laughs> not or not, but, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm very interested in that process of writing in real time. And I wonder what you think about that, especially as someone who spent nine years writing there. Yeah, previous well, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of terrifying and um, awe-inspiring. I mean, I can't imagine any writer other than her because who could do it because she is so quick. I mean, her mind is so quick. Anytime anyone who's ever seen her interviewed knows how quickly she makes connections and how in and what a sophisticated way she she kind of draws things together. So I I she is the only person I think who can pull it off, but I I am um, terrified at the prospect of it. <laughs> I think I hope it doesn't kill her. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's a really hard thing to have to do. Uh, she seemed up for the challenge, though. Well, my, my I mean, she's, she's, she's done it to herself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we're glad that she's done and it to herself. And we're glad she's done it to herself. <laughs> um, another question I wanted to ask, it's sort of related to what Ali's doing in terms of writing in real time, but it's about politics and a writer's relationship with politics. And mm. Ali's been fairly outspoken about various political causes, education, public libraries. Um, there is stuff about Brexit in the new novel yourself have um, you've been on question time you've fought with Nigel Farage if um, only physically <laughs> <laughs> you've shared a meal with Nigel Farage accidentally um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been enticed to go to the West Bank to write about the terrible things that happened there and I just wondered firstly I guess this is, this is a two-stranded question one is about politics in fiction and the other is about being a public figure, you know, you, you are a public figure as an author, you can't really help that. Um, and whether there's a pressure on you to be political, um, I don't think we, you know, I'm a literary editor, we're, we're often asking novel writers to, to talk about politics, we don't ask potters to do that, we don't tend <laughs> to ask fine artists or composers to do that, and I wonder whether you feel there's an unfair pressure or whether, whether you feel actually that's something that's part of the job. Well, again, I think, I mean, I understand why editors ask novelists to, to do it because they feel they bring a different perspective. And I know certainly the project I've been involved in with the West Bank, they very much wanted to bring novelists rather than, although they bring, did bring some journalists, they wanted to bring someone who, who would write about that experience in a different way. Um, to, and again, to try and sort of to make that experience more present for the reader the human experience. Um, and I think in, in terms, in, in those terms, I, it's something that I am happy to do if it is a project that I believe in, that I think is important. It's certainly not something I feel comfortable doing. Um, do, you, uh, do you feel more comfortable now than you did when you first became known um, in the outside world? Yeah, I mean, certainly the after Girl is a half Home thing was published, I would have run a mile from anything like that and would not have felt that it was my place. Um, and I still don't necessarily think it's my place, but at the same time, so few people in life ever get to speak mm. that if someone passes you a microphone, you better say something. <laughs> um, because, you know, because the powerful suck up all the oxygen and make all the noise in the world. And so you have to say something, and even if it's if it's not if it's not perfect, it is as a as a human being and as as a writer as an artist, you are there to be a part of the world, 
and to speak about that. And sometimes you have to do it in ways that you're not entirely comfortable with. And that's, as an artist, it's a very important thing to, to challenge your own comfort, mm. to do things that you don't know how to do if you think they are important enough. And then in terms of the actual work itself, I mean, how important do you think it is for art, specifically literature, um, to be political? I mean, we've talked about modernism as being a kind of political reaction as well as everything else to various forces that were going on. We live at the moment, I think we can all agree, in quite tense political times. Um, Do you feel that novel writing should be political always or...? I think it is, always. I don't think it has to be... I don't think a a novelist is obliged to write about politics. But if you are... As long as you are writing about the world, then you are writing something political. Um, And and so that's why it's very important to think very carefully about what it is you're saying and what what it is you're doing. But you don't have to do it in, in an overt way. Some writers choose to do that, and that is... That's their thing. That's how they make their contribution, and um, and I admire that. But that is not how I feel as a writer. For me, that has to be expressed in a much more in a human way. Uh, there's a there's a nice quote from Hilary Mantel, which you know, she says that the task of literature is to bring news of the world, or perhaps from the world. It means the same thing, which <laughs> I think is a, a quite a nice way of yeah. looking at it. Um, before we go to questions, I was just going to ask, uh, we've talked about Ali a little bit, are there any other writers at the moment who you think are doing particularly exciting, revolutionary style things who you'd like to well, praise? Well, I have, heavens? probably everyone knows this already, a massive crush on uh, Anna Kena Schofield, who I think is the absolutely <laughs> most, <hooray! laughs> most exciting novelist around at the moment. The most exciting novelist yeah, around in the world at the moment. Yes, yeah, alive in the universe. Right, okay. She's, she lives in Vancouver. Give a pitch, um, a three-minute pitch. I think um, she's written two novels, um, Malarkey and the second one is Martin John, which she wrote uh, because she had in- included a footnote in Malarkey which said uh, something like... Uh, See other novel, Martin John, and then <laughs> God, I had, write it. after she had written yeah. it, thought, "Shit, maybe I will write this book." <laughs> and so she—that's how Martin John came to be to be written, and and it's about um, uh, an Irish guy who does something sexually unpleasant to someone in Ireland, and is sent to England to kind of get him away from the town gossip and to keep him out of trouble. He has this sort of terrible obsessive compulsive disorder, and. He spends most of his time walking in loops around Euston Station and trying to do things to distract himself um, from his keenness to flash women on the tube. Um, and it is, I mean, it's incredibly disturbing, but it's, it's, again, it's a book where the form and the content are completely inextricable. And I don't know how she wrote it, so I find it infuriating. And <laughs> do you know, have you met her? Have you I asked? have, and... Um, I asked her, and she just went, don't ask. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which I thought, fair enough. I can see that it's the book that caused you a lot of suffering, um, but it was worth it. And uh, so I urge all people to go out and buy the complete works of Anna Kena Schofield. Fantastic. Okay, I think on that note, we can open up the floor to questions. Um, 
I think the way it's going to work is um, you let us know your name and your affiliation, whatever that is, I've sort of been told to say. Um, and there are going to be stewards with roving microphones. Um, and I've been asked to implore you all to keep your questions as brief as is humanly possible. Um, so, show of hands, anyone? Question over there, that's in red. Thank you. Um, my name's Joe, and I'm a reader. Uh, so, uh, first of all, thank you so much for creating The Lesser Bohemians. I recently read it, and I absolutely loved it. Um, and I also really enjoyed your reading oh. of it just now. Uh, can you hear me anyway? I can hear you. Yeah. I'll, I'll also repeat that <laughs> if, for those who haven't heard. Um, then, so yeah, my question is is about dialogue, actually. Um, so when I was reading The Lesser Bohemians, I was thinking uh, um, about the physical quite a lot, about the spaces. I could really feel the streets and the dirty house that the main character lives in and then the bedsit and the bed and the sheets and the sweaty sheets. Um, but then it kind of l lost me... a a little bit. I didn't feel there was as much space for myself in when it came to the dialogue section. So the section just before the bit you read, mm -hmm. where the guy like tells her in, in a form of a conversation. Yeah. And I was just interested in the perhaps the conversations you had with yourself about how to communicate this big chunk of information about his life. Yeah. And whether there was. Yeah, just your thought process about including dialogue in a modernist novel. D did everyone hear the question properly in the end? Yeah, okay, cool. Well, that is the best <laughs> bit in the book, by the way. <laughs> um, I, well, it was an interesting challenge because this, the book is very much about what what people say and what they don't say. I mean, part of the reason why there's so much shagging in the book is because there are two people who don't know how to talk about themselves, and this is how they make their connection with each other. Um, but it arrives at a point where he tells her his life story, and um, there were a lot of reasons why I wrote it in that way, but primarily because it makes sense. You can't tell someone else your life story in a modernist stream of consciousness. That's not how people speak to each other in the world. That's not what we do. Um, but also it was very much about, you know, the, the, you, as the reader you go along with her through her all her experiences up until that point. You are inside her experience. You don't really view her from the outside. You are kind of twinned with what's going on inside her. You have privileged information to everything that's going on, not just what she says. You know what she thinks and how she feels, etc. Um, whereas with him, it was really about examining how reliant we are on what other people tell us, which seems a bit of an interesting thing given what's going on in the world with telling lies in public now. Um, just to explore what it, what it means to, to be spoken to, what it is to hear someone else's story. And, and for me to, 
there was the challenge of, of how much he would tell. So he doesn't, he goes into some graphic details about things, other things less graphically, while at the same time always trying to communicate with her the kind of the depth of the experience. And so it was interesting for me as the writer just to, to see how much, how much you can get someone to say while, they, while that character still remains psychologically truthful. For me, all along, it had to be, if, it, if he stopped being a, a human being to the reader, then I would have failed as a writer. You don't, you know, I'm, in many ways, I'm a, a realist writer, too. There wasn't, he couldn't do something that would be outside of his psychological profile makeup. Um, I also found that the most compulsive bit of the whole book as well so I am I'm, I'm, you're I a am, good man I'm, I'm, I'm with the author on that one <laughs> I am on stage with her but no I, I actually mean that um, hi my name's Helen and I've got a question about your writerly process because the way you describe the lesser bohemians it's as if you did a huge set of technical drawings for the book the 800 pages and then rendered it into the sort of poetic prose that can be viscerally experienced but a girl was sort of born in a white hot rush and I'm intrigued as to why the second book happened so differently and I'm interested in what you think might happen next (laughs) Um, well you know I think with with a girl I just had no idea what I was doing I just sat, sat down and went here we go see what happens and that's what happened um, and then I didn't write at all for three years after I finished A Girl as a Half from Thing. And when I, so when I came to write Lesser Bohemians, I had to start right from the beginning again. I'd kind of lost all muscle memory. I had no idea how to write anymore. Um, so I had to learn that again. So I spent, so that first year, it took me a year to the first draft, um, which was really just kind of getting myself back into condition for writing again. And, um, of course, I thought it was all great, and I gave it to so my you, husband to you read. You weren't aware of that at the time, then? Not at the time. I didn't know that. I thought I was brilliant. <laughs> and uh, I gave it to my husband to read, and it was about, it was about 180 pages, I'd say. And uh, he went off and read it, and he just came back and went, this is shit. <laughs> and I thought, oh, bollocks. And I kind of immediately knew what he meant when he said that, despite having to curse him loudly for weeks afterwards. But then I went away and, and, and started again. But at that point, I suddenly understood something more about what I was going towards, about who these characters were, that I really wanted to explore every aspect of their relationship. Um, and it just, it was really, I mean, there were, there were a lot, with Girl, for instance, it was pretty much, the whole story was there at the end of the first draft, and it never really changed all, every scene that's in the first draft is in, I think, is in the, in the, in the third draft or in the published draft. Uh, whereas the Lesser Bohemians, there's loads of stuff that happens that, that just got cut in the end that just wasn't necessary didn't, or didn't make sense. I, uh, but I had to explore it in order to discover. So it was, um, it was really just a process of learning to write and then learning who I was writing about and then how I was writing right at the end. And there was, I think there was a little addendum to the question which you may have dodged about, about what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, 
Well, yeah, next is, 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 um, is the follow-up. <laughs> there you go. The end. Okay, right. <laughs> um, it's up there in the middle, I think. Oh, um, one across there. Hi there. Uh, my name is Neve, um, and I have a like slightly nerdy question about your relationship with Joyce, if that's all right. Okay. Um, so you spoke about reading about sex and violence and how in male authors you see certain gaps mm-hmm. uh, in, in the way they recount the experience. Uh, and I read Finnegan's Wake over a long period last year, and I, you know, I read a lot of like really confronting violence in Finnegan's Wake particularly around the incident in the park. And I don't think that uh, the men I was reading with saw that. Uh, I often felt like Joyce was was laughing at it uh, in a way I found kind of uncomfortable. Um, And so in your kind of dialogue with Joyce, how does gender play in that? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that I I actually have a dialogue with Joyce, but I... um, I mean, it's really more about saying this was that what he did was off his time, and and what I was interested in was a kind of rebellion against Molly Bloom, more than than anything else, I suppose, with him, um, and that you know the just the I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to get into an argument about. Presumption and what what writers are or are not allowed to write about, um, because I also think Molly Bloom is a hugely important piece of work that was had a very positive influence. But I do think that a lot of uh, male writing about violence and about sexual violence lacks a sense of horror, um, because it was seen as something that women were equipped to deal with, expected to deal with, to know how to deal with. And it wasn't quite as bad for them as it would be if it happened to a man, because women, women knew about that sort of thing. And, and I think that is an attitude that just kind of pervades most writing. Um, and, it's, and I'm interested in, in kind of stripping that away, really, and being as confrontational as I can about it. And it's, you know, people find sometimes the sexual violence in the book, especially Girl is a Half-Room thing, very upsetting. And I think that's good because it should be upsetting because it is upsetting. And it's only by writing about it in that way that thing people are aware, become really aware, deeply aware of what it means and don't just pay lip service to it. Was it also then important for you to write about sexual violence towards a man, which is something that's explored in The Lesser Bohemians? Yes, I think... um, Yes, I think it is. Um, Because... Because no one owns it. Because it happens to lots of different people and it is experienced by them in, in different ways. And in some ways, I suppose, I want to say that we are all in it together we are all in it together hello 
Hi, um, my name is Ruth, and just thank you both for a really great conversation. Um, actually, nice segue on from um, Neve's question. I just wanted to ask Emir, um, is the Joyce thing ever exhausting? Um, I feel like it is, you know, it's so great to have discussions like this, and, uh, you know, for you, it must be amazing to, to constantly be involved in these conversations about this literary giant and how it's influenced you. But is there a point where every interview, every review, every blurb, um, he's mentioned and at, at what point does it become almost like a, a marketing exercise or a bit of a branding thing or is it just only ever a lovely positive thing well it's, I mean it's there are worse things <laughs> to, uh, to, uh, to be compared to but yeah it, I mean it does drive me around the bend a bit um, because because it's a way of not being seen as well and and if and I understand why certainly with the girl as a half form thing critics particularly use Joyce because it was a way of being able to speak about it. But I don't you know, I don't think a girl as a half form thing is a is a, a work of stream of consciousness. I think it, it it has evolved from that tradition, but it is an evolved thing. It is working in a different way. And I can see that, you know, Joyce is a it's a shorthand, it's a way of talking about particularly Irish writers who are interested in modernism or interested in language and using language in different ways. But um, it, I think it can be obstructive as well, that people then only look at the ways that it's like Joyce um, or consider that it's, it's kind of sub-Joyce because it's not doing what he's doing rather than really realising that it's, it's doing something different something that's coming out, come out from a sort of a, a different angle. But yeah, I mean, there are worse things. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, a, okay, I can see three hands there, so let's start at the top. <laughs> the man at the top. Hello, my name's uh, David. My question reverts back to your reference to Dostoevsky. Um, Dostoevsky's many fine qualities, one of which is his psychological studies of men. Um, and I just wondered uh, what challenges you faced trying to get into the psychology of males in your novels. Well, you know, I was very um, aware of that thing that is said that women can't write men, which is usually said by men who've written lots of books about women. And, um, and so I knew it was a, just a load of old bollocks, but I, it was something that I did think about a lot. Um, and, and in a way, I, I, I tried to approach it in, a, in, in different ways, and one of which was listening to a lot of music that had been written by men because music in some ways, it seems to me, opens up a part of the person that is often hidden by novelists, for instance, that it is something that is much more vulnerable and emotional that comes out in, in music and in songwriting. And so I, I listen to a lot of that, because also it's, it's a point of intersection. There are the things that are different about us, and then there are the things that are the same. And so, for me, it was really trying to work out with him what, what I thought, um, who I thought he was, 
and what he was as a result of who he had been, etc. And and then just really trying to see if if I was giving him a bit too much emotional, I don't know, intelligence? I don't wish to be rude about men, but... <laughs> um, but also, I think the fact that he's an actor means that he is, in a way, uh, has access to speaking about himself in a way that, you know, a banker, for instance, may not feel so comfortable speaking about themselves. Um, he has a vocabulary for that, even if it's something he doesn't choose to use very much. But it was certainly... It was an interesting, an interesting thing to do. Um, what music in particular did you listen to then? Which, which artists? Um, <laughs> well, I listened to a lot of Nick Cave. I was going to say, that's the first thing that, that's the first <laughs> he thing does get, a, he does get a, a, a mention in the book. Um, because it had actually just started with listening to a lot of music that I'd listened to in the 90s, just to kind of recreate that sort of atmosphere. So I'd listened to a lot of pulp or and Suede, and yeah, those kind of... Suede is definitely name-checked in the book, I think Dogman Star, Dog Star gets, is, and I gets think there at one point, yeah. And, um, and so, and, and Radiohead, I think, particularly. And really just to hear men write about themselves. Male Howls of Pain, in particular, I would yeah. say. Yeah, I two, love a male Howl of Pain. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there were two more questions on this side. Um, yes, there was one there. And then the um, I was curious about your three-year gap after a sort of megaly successful book. Mm. And uh, unless it was personal, was it because your head was exploding? Because the way you write, <laughs> it, just, it yeah. feels like you have so much in your head about your story and you're living in this world. And it, it just... I, no, I was just curious was, about the, the gap. It was really... It was kind of a... Um, I was sending Girl as a Half-Form thing out, so there was part of me that was sure that publishers would soon be rushing to my door and I would have to focus on doing rewrites and important literary things. And so I didn't really want to get into another book straight away. But also I was living in Tottenham at the time, so I was temping. And it was, although er, before I'd written Girl, I, I used to get up at five in the morning and write just to kind of learn how to write. I found it quite hard after I had written Girl to do that again. Um, I just found it hard to have that kind of headspace when you spend a day um, I don't know, licking envelopes or I don't know. I was thinking the last time I was here actually was I had a day's temping as um, an usher for the, one of the graduation <laughs> ceremonies. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you don't really feel like going home and writing great literature after that. You want to eat a pizza and watch Carnation Street or something, you know? So, um, but after sort of three years, I moved back to Ireland um, and I was able to write properly at that point and not temp anymore. And that was when the, when the Lesser Bohemians began because it was also the point where I realised that Girl wasn't going to get published and I had to decide whether I was still a writer or not. So it was kind of now or never. Uh, next question, please. And then I think we've probably got time for maybe two more after that, and then we should probably wrap things up. 
Hi, um, I'm Gemma. I don't have any affiliation. Um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you talked about Dostoevsky, and I, I'm interested in uh, the question of voice and speech, mm-hmm. and uh, what do you think happens when you say something out loud? Because, you know, for a girl, I thought it was we, you were inviting the reader into her inner world. Yeah. And, you know, when you actually say something out loud, is, is you know, the air around us a kind of a common denominator, a leveller? that changes everything. And in, a, in an age of kind of Twitter and people kind of exposing themselves and, you know, yeah, not yeah. Exposing, you know what I mean? Like, well, that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a lot more that, um, that our, our inner worlds are kind of exposed a lot more mm-hmm. these days than yeah. you know, we're out there. Um, and did it make it easier? And the second question I have, sorry, is up to, is um, where did you find the courage? I was blown away by your courage. Oh, well, thank you. That, that was more sort of I don't know, stubbornness than courage, I think, and sort of unwillingness to do anything anyone else thought would be a useful thing to do. Um, foolhardiness, perhaps. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it was, although I, I hadn't really thought about it when I was writing the book, I think it's important that the book is set in the 90s, before there's any kind of social media, before there are even mobile phones, um, because it had to be about that very difficult getting over an inability to communicate. And I didn't want, they, they couldn't have any cheats, like, oh, I'll just send him a text, and then I'll know about whatever he's up to, or, you know, that kind of thing, or, oh, will he, will he mind if I show up pissed on his doorstep, kind of thing. She had to physically do it, and then live with the consequences of showing up pissed on his doorstep. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, it was, the, that kind of having to be forcing people to communicate directly was very important. Um, and I think for the, the section, I call it the long night section where he tells his story, was it does come out of um, a kind of an interest in Dostoevsky's The Devils in Stavrogin's Confession, where, which I'm, I'm just completely sort of, I don't, I'm sorry if anyone's heard me talking about this before, but I am kind of obsessed with it, which was this... So he, Dostoevsky had written the, the Devils, which is this great political novel. Um, but he, it was like the novelist inside him, couldn't just write the big political novel. He wanted to write about the person as well. So he ended up writing this big section about Stavrogin, who's kind of the anti-hero of the novel, um, where he confesses to raping a child... Um, who later takes her own life. And at the time, he was persuaded not to publish it for obscenity reasons and moral reasons, and it wasn't uh, published at all until it was found in his papers or his wife's papers in the 20s. And, and now it's, it's published as an annex to the rest of the novel. Um, and I love it because it completely changes the rest of the novel when you read this kind of wholly personal, internal piece of, of writing about this character. Um, and I, and I, I wanted to see if it was possible to kind of take those. And I also I love that big kind of 19th century saga where you just like someone sits down and tells their whole life story. I love those kind of books. And I, I kind of wanted to have that in there as well. Um, but, yeah, and so for me, the, the kind of the difficulty was then just deciding how much of her there should be, how much I should make her present and how much I should just let him speak in the room. Um, Did you have one eye on the theatre with that as well? 
I mean, there's obviously very theatrical and dramatic about that. Yeah, I think I always have one eye on the theatre. I think it's kind of, it's that form, although I've no real kind of interest in, in writing a play, that, that kind of performative aspect of any kind of storytelling is completely essential to me. I mean, I, really, I always feel, and I'm very aware all the time, it's, I could never write solely about ideas. It has to be what the bodies are doing to express the ideas at the same time. Um, a couple more. Uh, okay, one there, please, and then I'll come to you. Sorry, everyone else. <laughs> Hi there. Um, I was just... Sorry, my name's Olivia. Um, I don't have an affiliation necessarily. Um, I was just wondering, you were talking before about sort of, for example, critics thinking something was subjoice or something like that, and how you, how often do you read and to what extent do you take to heart what your critics say and how much does that impact, especially, for example, when you're talking about what's next, the level of self-consciousness that then brings to a voice which is not necessarily like, you know, which relies very much on a, a balance between self-consciousness and lack of... Um, I think when Girl was published, I read everything because I was just amazed that anything was being written about anything I would ever do. And um, so I, I read everything and then I got the fear. And I would sit down, work on this, and I would hear, you know, James Wood going, oh, one of our characters speaks like a pirate or something. You know? <laughs> And, and then just spend all my time thinking, oh, no, make sure you don't make anyone sound like a pirate. Um, or write a book about pirates. <laughs> or write a book about pirates, just for James Wood. But, um, uh, but after a while, I, you know, I really kind of thought, oh, shit, maybe I can only write one book. All these reviews end with the, with the words, she'll never write another book as good as this book, or what can she ever do after this book? And, and there was a part of me thought, Jesus, maybe they're right. Um, and then I thought... Oh, for Christ's sake, I've been writing this book for nine years. <laughs> I know that I have written another book. I know that I know everything about this book. I know I just have to get it right. And, and really, the kind of the deal then you have to make with yourself is you, you get everyone out of the room and you remember that you didn't write the first book to get great reviews. You're not writing any book to get great reviews. Great reviews are great to get, but that's not the point. That is not what you're there for. You're writing for a reader in 10 years' time and 30 years' time and 100 years' time, hopefully. And, and pleasing today's critics is not really going to do you any good at all. As a, as a writer, you must write from that deepest part of yourself, that part that is the most capable of truth. And hopefully, if you do that you can then communicate something of meaning and of value. And then whatever the critics think of it, you know that you have written the thing that you wanted to write. And then you can live with it. And, and that's how you live... I mean, that's how I lived with all the years of failure with A Girl as a Half-Formed Thing, was knowing that I had written what I had to write. And if no one wanted to publish it, I was just going to have to suck that one up. But the book was what it had to be. And it turned out that that's, I had to take that and, and turn it on its head and use that to deal with what it was like to write on the back of success. 
you must write what you must write, and no one else gets a say, no one else gets in the room. That's the only way. Although there are some critics who I do really hate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that noble. Um, final question. Hi, um, my name's Emma, and my question sort of follows on really from what you were saying. Um, just, uh, and sorry, I'm a bit nosy, so. <laughs> um, but you, you said um, that when you went to Ireland, you had thought that uh, a girl was not going to ever be published. Mm-hmm. And you started writing again, and just obviously it's been <laughs> published. Just uh, interested to know more about that, that process. Like what happened? Oh, <laughs> about the publishing process. Well, uh, so I went to Ireland and uh, I lived in Cork for quite a few years. And then my husband got a job uh, in Norwich. So we moved back to Norwich. And one day he went into the book hive in the centre of Norwich. It's an independent bookstore. And started gossiping with Henry Late, who runs the bookstore. And Henry said, oh, right, and what does your wife do? And he said, oh, well, and told him the big, long tale of failure and woe and everything. And Henry went, oh, well, you'll not believe this, but me and some friends are thinking of setting up a press. Uh, Do you think she'd let us read the book? And um, William said, I dare say she would let you read the book. Um, and so I went down to the book hive a couple of weeks later with this manuscript and he said, great, great, I'm going to take it on my holidays. And I said, don't take it on your holidays. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't take it on your holidays. But then him being what the kind of person, the mad person he is, he did take it on his holidays and then emailed me from his holidays, I think after which his wife was not speaking to him, saying, I love it, I love it, but uh, so let's meet up. So we met up and he said, I love it, I love it, but uh, we have no money and we don't know what we're doing. Um, can we come back to you? And I went, all oh, right, thanks for that. Again, I've heard this one before. I never thought I'd hear from him again. And a year later, he emailed me and he said, well, we still don't know what we're doing um, and we still have no money, but we have published one book. Do you think you let us publish Girl is a half thing, and I said, "I ah, yeah, go on." And uh, and so then had there been an entire year's break then? Between I'd say that? there was about a year. Yep. And so you completely um, shelved it. In your yeah, mind I just together. thought, oh, fucker, why was he wasting my time calling me in for a meeting? I remember because it was my thirty-fifth birthday, and about a week before, I'd had this really long, agonising dream in which I was. 25 and I realised that my life was a failure and, and then at the end of the dream thinking oh well I'm only 25 it's, there's still a chance to fix it and then I woke up and then I thought shit I'm 35 it's too late now and then on my 35th birthday I had this meeting with Henry and I remember thinking this might be it this might be it I'm gonna you know he's gonna publish the book and then he just went no oh, no and I just sort of went home and cried and uh and, yeah, just really hated him. And, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and then about a year later, he came back and said, the let's do it. The 36th birthday. Just maybe. before the 36th, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's how it all happened in the end. Right, well, on that note, it looks like time has run out. Um, so um, I must thank Ema for some absolutely wonderful <laughs> insights there. I'm sure you...